How much thought have you given to the end of the world? Answers to this question probably range from not much at all to I buy every book I can find on the subject. Certainly, it is a compelling topic in the publishing marketplace. Some people look at the characteristics of our time and predict the end of the world, or that the second coming of Christ or the great day of the Lord is just around the corner. Let's discuss the end of the world on this edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. So Aaron, there are lots of topics, lots of things we can talk about when we pick up our Bibles, very important subjects. How important is the subject of the end of the world? Uh, it's massively important. Uh, every single person right now is thinking about the end of the world. Uh, we live in an era, we live in an age um, you know, I was thinking about lunch, so maybe uh, maybe I wasn't as focused as I should be. I don't know. Well, no, it's it's like the background noise of everybody's life um, that things are getting worse, things are going to end, it's going to be bad. We, um, you know, modernism that that period of time between uh, 1600 and the mid 1900s, where we believed that uh, science and rationalism and progress and uh, human brotherhood was going to lead us into a bright new age of uh, peace and justice was extremely utopian, extremely optimistic about the world becoming a better place. I mean, after all, this is what's behind. Um, this is the uh, this is what's behind um, uh, Darwinian biological evolution that things are getting better. The world is becoming a better place. Uh, with the um, the events of the 20th century, um, Auschwitz. Uh, the atomic bombs, lots of other things going on, uh, genocide being a big part of it. Um, our culture, our what we call a postmodern culture, is largely convinced that the world is becoming a worse and worse place and that things are getting worse and worse, and it's headed towards uh, devastation. This is reflected in the kind of stories we tell ourselves now. Dystopian fiction is extremely popular movies, books about... What is dystopian fiction? Uh, the opposite of utopian, uh, you, you know, stories about um, the end of the world and everything is chaos. Uh, stories like The Hunger Games and things like that. I'm, I'm reading a novel right now called uh, Station Eleven. This is this will link in with our real world, actually, which is written several years ago, but is about a future world where uh, a global pandemic has wiped out 99% of the population and the devastation that that produces. Well, now you throw throw a culture that's convinced that things are going to end horribly into an actual global pandemic. And p people are convinced that things are spiraling out of control and getting worse and worse. And so, you know, different people grapple with this in different ways. Um, I'm convinced this is one of the reasons why we're a lot more angry with each other uh, than we used to be is because this is what happens when the ship is sinking. Uh, why we're a lot more addicted to pleasure, this is another thing that happens when the ship is sinking, is you just got, the only thing you can do is have as much fun and good time as you can. I mean, the Bible has something to say with uh, about everything too, which is where we're headed, but as far as your your question, is this important? It is on everybody's mind, Christians, non-Christians, 
the end of the world is on everybody's mind. I'm surprised to hear you say that. I can, I can imagine that it's true that the end of me, or for you, the end of you, that's that's on my mind. I think about that from time to time. I think if everybody contemplates the end of their life in one way or another, especially at the funeral home or at the funeral service. But I'm surprised to hear you say that most, if not nearly all people, have given some real thought to the end of the world, especially for non-Christian people. Do Christian people and non-Christian people come at this question from different perspectives? Well, I, so if you pick up like the Hunger Games and ask, is this a book about the end of the world? It, what, what happens in the Hunger Games? Well, yeah, I don't want to like break this down. It's the... It's us. No spoiler here. Well, just... also, you, you know, I'm not necessarily an expert, but it's a world where um, uh, society, civilization uh, is largely broken down, and people are invited for sport to these great athletic contests where uh, the winner is the one person who manages to not get killed, and everybody else is killed by the participants, the last person standing. So is it about the end of the age in the sense of like, so lots of times Christians will think there's this event that ends the Unbelievers don't frequently think about like a divine event that ends the world. But what they do think about is the, the dissolution of society, uh, the breakdown of infrastructure. Global nuclear war. Yes, those sorts of things. Or uh, global warming um, or a global pandemic, something that would something that would shut down the entire system, that would de de deplete the world's population enough that chaos reigns, that the, the roads are not kept up, that there's no more electricity, there's no more internet, there's no more air travel, those sorts of things. Food supply is uh, very, uh, you know, hunting and scavenging, you know, there's no more grocery stores, that sort of thing. Um, there's not necessarily maybe like this God-ordained event that causes it, but this is the fear of people's minds. I'm familiar enough with the Bible to know that that kind of imagery is in there. It's in the Bible. Um, calamity and ending poorly rather than ending well. Uh, is is the Bible on the same page as this other kind of thing that you've been describing? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, yeah, the Bible, the Bible there's, there's lots of times in the Old Testament where People, so, so the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, written from the, from the perspective of, of a particular nation, the nation of Israel, or later on the nation of Judah, uh, but by and large, minding their own business, overrun several times by foreign countries that are you know, hungry for power. In, in the 8th century BC, it's the Neo-Assyrians. In the uh, 6th century BC, it's the Neo-Babylonians who come in and uh, destroy cities, salt crops, um, kill men and, and women, uh, take a lot of people as slaves. That's sort of like, you know, today we would call that apocalyptic, although that's not a great word for it biblically, but you, we'd be making uh, movies and novels about a world where like, but that was their life. It, you know, that, that was, at, at times, that's what happened to people. Or uh, you think about the Black Death in, in the uh, 1300s in Europe. Uh, where sometimes two-thirds of the population of major cities would be wiped out by a pandemic. It's actually, a, this is a, a way that people have lived. We've been lulled to sleep by modernism here in the West that, well, you know, medicine, science can take care of all these things. And one of the scary things about the 
uh, the, the recent um, coronavirus pandemic is that at least briefly, scientists basically had to say, we can't do anything. We Just stay nothing. inside. Yeah. And that freaked everybody out because the God that we've always trusted wasn't there. And that's, the, you know, that's the boogeyman lurking under the bed is what if there's no God? You know, what if there's no science to stop this? Uh, or whatever. What if there's no military to protect us? And even people who don't believe in, you know, a capital G personal God believe in a God that they trust in to get them through things like, you know, armed conflict or viruses or whatever. What if there is no God? That's the prospect that everybody's grappling with right now in our culture. And I mean, you want to call that the end of the world, maybe in the not in a time sense or chronological sense, but the end of civilization as we know it. This is what everybody's scared of. And you're totally right that the Bible does picture that this happens frequently throughout human history. So in Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus says about his return, quote, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. It seems like one of the compelling things that might cause us to think about the end of the world, might make it the background noise of every person, is when will this happen? Uh, the disciples asked Jesus that question in the Gospel of Matthew. But if no one can know the time of his second coming, which is what Matthew 24, 36 says, why should we spend any time ruminating about the end of the world? Yeah, so yeah, a couple of things about that. First of all, when, you're totally right, when is the big question? When is it going to happen? You know, You don't suspect a global pandemic, right? But we have all we have all sorts of models that try to work scientific models that try to work these things out. Whether it's um, um, you, you know, here living in the American Midwest, every once in a while I'll see a report of somebody, some uh, some seismologist that's figured out when is the new Madrid fault uh, going to do its thing again. You know, it's been several hundred years since we've had a cataclysmic earthquake here. Out on the west coast, of, of course, they deal with this. Some of us remember the the earthquakes in the Bay Area and the late 80s. But this, that's a huge question. We want to know, when is the, when is the bad stuff going to happen? And um, that's a, just, a, just a human impulse. Everybody has that. When the Bible tells us that we can't know that thing, it's not meant to terrify us. Although I, I do understand there's a part of that that is terrifying. Like, I, I don't know if I'm going to get a phone call today that something bad has happened to somebody in my family. I don't know if I'm going to have a heart attack right now sitting here talking to you. You just don't, I don't know if like there's going to be a new variant of this virus that's going to be even more devastating. We just don't know those things. And so without God, I mean capital G personal God, it is scary. Well, it's scary with a, with a, it's scary with just a lowercase g God too because those gods can't actually, you know, I mean it's, it's like like we said the, the science has been largely ineffective in um, keeping alive thousands and thousands of people who suffered from this virus. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying that science is completely ineffective, but it hasn't been the God that we all hoped it was. It's not solved the problems. However, if you believe that there's a personal God that's in charge of all this timing and holds it in the palm of his hand, it's not terrifying. It's actually comforting to not know because I don't need to know. Somebody larger and bigger than me and more powerful than me and who um, holds the keys of death and hell in his hand and uh, uh, gives life is in charge of this. 
and is God under control? And so when Jesus says nobody knows, he's not meant to be terrifying. It's meant to be like, you don't need to know. You have things that you need to do today. You need to love your friends. You need to go to work. You need to take care of your neighbors. Meanwhile, let God be in charge of when things happen in the future. So let's just take a little sidetrack here based on Matthew 24, 36, where it says that the angels don't know when the day and the hour is. Uh, the son doesn't know. Right. Jesus says, I think, I don't know yeah. here in Matthew 24. Um, now, if we think that Jesus is God, and we do, mm-hmm. and we think that God is omniscient, and we do, how do you explain Jesus saying, I don't know when the end is? Yeah, you're right. This would be a sidetrack. Uh, J- Jesus is God. That's clear from Scripture. He's worshipped as God. He claims to do things like forgiving sins uh, that only God has the right to do. Um, the, the, the New Testament also, uh, not as vocally, insists that Jesus has given up some chunk of that glory, the, the glory of being God, N- not the status of being God, not the essence of being God, but the, the accoutrements of being God, the, the, the glory of being God in order to become human. Paul says in, in Philippians 2 that Jesus emptied himself and made himself into the form of a servant and took upon himself uh, the likeness of man and uh, made himself liable to death, even. Um, Jesus here says that I don't even know when this is going to happen. This fits in with that theme, that there are some things that Jesus has voluntarily given up in order to become like one of us. I actually find this encouraging. Look, if I was if I if if I was going to tell the story of Jesus, where Jesus was this shyster and this con man, or just this wise teacher, this misunderstanding, I definitely would not have anything in there about him being worshipped or being referred to as the Lord or the Son of Man, a messianic term from the Old Testament. I would not have people bowing down to him. I would not have him saying, I forgive sins. I would not have him calming storms. On Alternatively, if I was going to write a story where I was trying to prove that Jesus was God, I would not include stuff like this in there where he says, I don't even know. It's kind of self-authenticating the way it is now. Very much so. It's very, very real. If God was going to become a human, it's the kind of thing that... Maybe we wouldn't anticipate, but when it happened, we would say, that feels real to me. It feels real that if God was going to become a construction worker, he would be like, I'm God. I created the world. There are limits to this at this point in time because I did decide to become a Jewish construction worker. It feels authentic authentic to me too. So using the context that you've described here, your biblical context for trying to think about the end of the world, that subject, when you hear coming from the political realm, the one we're in right now, people saying things like, we've only got 12 years left. Right, and yeah. then somebody else the next day says, we only have 10 years left. Yeah. Uh, how do you think about that kind of assertion in the context of your understanding of the end of the world? Yeah. So, okay, this might be a little bit cynical, but... Um you know, politics, like advertising, is good at tapping into the psyche of the culture in order to manipulate. And one of the things that politicians do is they, 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 tap, in, they tap into this fear that we all have that 
things are going to get worse. Society is going to fall apart. And they tell us here in, the, in some countries, it's multiple voices, but here in the United States, it's largely two voices who kind of have the uh, duopolistic control of the political system. Both of them warn us that if we don't vote for their side, it is going to be bad, that things are going to fall apart, that there's going to be devastation if you let the other side have control. Well, the, the th here's what I'm saying as a Christian is that the fear that they're tapping into is legit fear, that there is the possibility that things are going to get bad. We, we know from human history, we know from the way that, that things have even happened to God's people in the Bible. However, I find it evil and idolatrous that certain people would tap into that fear in order to manipulate other people for power or for money. I find that very disturbing, and it's, I think it's very important for Christians to realize that, that Christians, I, I, I believe, I'm not saying this as law, it's just a personal opinion, Christians should be voting and being involved. But giving over the sort of messianic power that Jesus says only God the Father has, only God the Father is in control of the end of the world, to take that hope that we put in God the Father as the one who holds the times and the seasons in the palm of his hand and transfer it to a political party or to a political candidate is the very definition of idolatry. It's what Caesar's trying to do in the New Testament. It's what Nebuchadnezzar and Sennacherib are trying to do in the Old Testament is to take the aspirations of God's people that things are going to get better and transfer them to themselves. I find that idolatrous. But you're totally right. That only works if we live in a culture where the end of the world is a, is a real fear. Let's go back to some of those biblical descriptions that we mentioned before, which seem to parallel, I don't know if I should use the word dystopian or not, but mm -hmm. to parallel those images that people carry with them when they think about the end of the world, images of terror and judgment and calamity. Should Christians fear the end of the world? Fear. Uh, not, for the, not, not for ourselves, if, if what the Bible is saying is true. We should fear for, mainly for other people. I, one of the interesting features of so it's, it's actually oh I, I boy I hate to sound like this is some sort of like secret code that only the Christians get. Let me try to explain it in a way that's not like this, you know, weird sort of like hey only you can only get this if you know me. But here's what Christians argue from this is what the Bible claims. Okay, now if you're an unbeliever. Um, I'm inviting you into this story. If you don't believe it, there's really nothing I can do about it here. But if you have questions about it, ask me. Get a hold of us and, and, and ask us. Uh, the Bible insists that there's both good stuff coming and bad stuff coming, and that the things, you know, armies sweeping through Israel in the 6th century BC and destroying crops and killing babies and burning down houses and cities that that's actually a feature of human history. It's quite possible that that will happen again. When it does happen, finally, the Bible insists, well, so I'll just give you some language from uh, uh, one of the writings of one of the earliest Jesus followers, Peter, that God is going to judge the world with fire. And one of the things we do is, if we don't know God, we think, Oh my word, like this is this vindictive God who's going to it's kind of scary, you know, it makes for like horror movies, the world being judged by fire. But but when you read on what Peter is saying is that he's not destroying the world out of anger, he's purifying the world for himself. Look, bad things are going to happen in the future. And the reason why is because bad things are happening now. The pollution of sin, 
the pollution of rebellion um, against God, the, the, the relationships that have been destroyed, the genocides that have happened, uh, the environmental calamities that, have, that are taking place because humans have rebelled against God, including a, a virus. And I'm not saying that like the virus is God's judgment on the sins of the people of Florida or just making up stuff, you know. It's actually, it's, 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 it's uh, uh, and actually Christianity is not the only religion that insists on this. Hinduism and Buddhism both insist that um, when human beings do bad things, it affects the environment. So th- this is, people all over the world recognize that the evil of humans has resulted in bad things happening to the world. Okay. For that to be ended, there's going to have to be a large scale house cleaning to get rid of all this ugly sin and violence and war and oppression and uh, cheating and lying. Like the universe being rolled up like a scroll? Yeah. Like it, that that's how big the problem is. That's how powerful the death of Jesus is and the resurrection of Jesus is. It, is it has the power to someday clean all these things out. Okay. If I ended there, that would be super scary. But that's not the end. The Bible insists that the end of time is not devastation. The end of time is not the Hunger Games or a, a world wiped out from a global pandemic. The Bible insists that God's goal is to recreate the heavens and the earth, to make the creation that we're living in now new. And the end game is he gets rid of all that bad stuff so that there can be a new, fresh world where people live in perfect relationship with each other, perfectly worshiping him, perfectly taking care of the environment perfectly enjoying the benefits of a beautiful environment, that that's the end game. And it's so important to understand that, that that, uh, God has good things in store. God wants good things to happen. So I think I know the answer to the question. The question was, should Christians fear the end? Was that a yes or a no? Oh, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a yes and a no. I mean, we should... No wonder I was confused. Right, yeah, no... None of us should be looking forward to this. Uh, none of us should be looking forward to even bad people. We should all our hearts should break when even bad people die. Our hearts should break when even countries that have have horrible records of human rights abuses, when there's a disease that ravages that country, all of us should be horrified at that. We should be afraid of that for the people that live there. But for Christians, if the Christian story is true. That's not the end of the game. Things are going to get better. God is going to fix things. He's going to make things right. And so in that sense, to trust him and say, God, I'm not going to be afraid because you, I'm going to work. I'm going to, like, I'm going to become a doctor, an epidemiologist to, to fix this stuff. I'm going to get involved in my community so that I can fight back against oppression. I'm going to run for political office so that I can fight against uh, you know, the forces that would say, let's, you know, war is the answer or, you know, uh, economic corruption is the way to, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, for the political class to make themselves uh, established. I'm going to fight against these things. But at the end of the day, it's not because I think this is hopeless and I've just got to put my, you know, just got to stand in the gap, but because I'm convinced that God is going to make all things new and he's letting me be a part of it even now. So let's look at the other side of that coin. So we talked about, should Christians fear the end of the world? What about unbelievers. Should they fear the end of the world? Yeah, definitely. I, um, this sounds kind of cruel, but like if you are if you are rebelling against the lordship of Jesus Christ, I just want to say that I don't have to tell you that things are going to be bad for you. You already know. Turn on the news. This is, the, this is just, this is the rest of 
the world's this is the rest of your existence is uh, the bad things that are going on that there's, there's if we don't know this by now then we just have our heads stuck in the sand like medicine is not going to fix everything we are going to die the politicians lie when they say that they can fix everything they never have the only hope that we have that things are going to turn out good is if there is a creator God who is determined to make them turn out good. And in fact, that's what we have. We have a creator God who turned himself into a human so that he could have all the diseases of the world, so that he could have all the heartbreak of the world, so that every dystopian event could happen to him in one cosmic moment, and that he could absorb it and rise from the dead to guarantee that someday he's going to fix everything. That's really the only hope. I mean, you can, you know, if you're an unbeliever, I'm, I guess at this point, I'm sort of begging you to turn to this one true hope, the hope that there's a God who in Jesus Christ can make all things new. Outside of that, I would say, yeah, really, you don't have a whole lot besides fear. I mean, maybe some fun times to, you know, you know, the people who are getting drunk as Vesuvius erupts and Pompeii is being covered in ash. That's really all you've got going for you. Outside of that, it really is fear. It seems that depending on what end of the world commentary you buy or perhaps what TV evangelist you watch, there is a wide, and I mean wide, range of teaching on the end of the world. And on that subject, the Bible often uses symbolism, mm -hmm. imagery to describe the end times. How can one possibly hope to have a right or correct perspective on this subject when so much of it is so vague? So biblically, you're talking like... Uh, you know, studying the Bible? Uh, yes, but broader than that, experience, because many of us listen to teachers or watch mm -hmm, teachers yeah. on uh, the television, or perhaps we have a teacher as a pastor right. who is giving direct interpretations of these kinds of things. And if you listen to enough sources, it doesn't take long to figure out that they're not in agreement right. and that they're all over the map. Yeah. Uh, so two things here. One is, do you want to do this the easy way or the hard way? If we do it the easy way, I can just say this. Um, there's lots of details that different people who study the Bible disagree about, but there's a few big there's a few big details that everybody agrees about. One is this: uh, Christians agree about Jesus died and rose from the dead to make all things new. He is going to appear again someday, and put everything back to rights. That's the basic outline of what happens in the story of the Bible, in the story of our world. Um, the details, whatever. You can take or leave those, right? I mean, um, the, 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 if you told me right now that my favorite football team was going to win the Super Bowl, I would say, okay, that's all I want to know right now. I'll enjoy the details, the ins and outs of the games that lead up to that moment. I can enjoy those now. But the, the, the specific concrete thing is that Jesus, who died and rose from the dead, is Lord of the universe and will appear someday to make all things right again. Okay, that's the easy answer. Here's the hard answer, and it's I, we don't even have time to talk about this because it's tapping into the question of how do you interpret different things in the Bible? Specifically, how do you interpret a genre that we don't have in our culture anymore, the genre of apocalyptic which is not about the... So let's talk about that a little bit yeah. more, the apocalyptic genre. Um, I'm not even sure that I know what you're talking about. Right. Here. Obviously, it exists. Uh, the book of Revelation, is, I guess in Greek, is the apocalypse. So right. I'm sort of trying to make that link. What is this 
apocalyptic genre that you're talking about. It's a type of literature common in the ancient Jewish world. And this literature, it's, it's, it's present frequently throughout the Bible, but there's some places where it's sort of concentrated. Uh, the book of Zechariah, the book of Daniel, or the book of Revelation in the Christian New Testament, of course, is a famous one where there's lots of crazy, weird imagery about, you know, wild things happening. What the, what the genre is, is and, and t- again, this is, this is maybe even a totally different podcast episode if we really want to go down this boring route, is it's a way of infusing current day events with cosmic significance. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, one in the Hebrew Bible, David, King David is describing, he's a character in the Hebrew Bible, he's describing the events that led to him becoming king. He's persecuted He's uh, on the run, but he ends up becoming king. And he says that when this happened, God speaks and the world shakes. Now, was there actually literally an earthquake when David became king? Not that we know of, probably not. But what David is saying is this event, me becoming king, was not just in the arise, the, the, the rise, of the, you know, the, the, what am I looking for? The ascension of another king. It's actually got cosmic significance. We have this in our language too. Um, there's this famous poem that kids learn uh, in American schools growing up about the the first battle of the Revolutionary War, and um, in, in this poem, the poet says, uh, it's talking about that these farmers that stood at this bridge and fired at. Uh, the professional British soldiers that were headed their way. And there's a line in this poem that says, here the embattled farmer stood and fired the shot heard around the world. Okay, was that shot literally heard all the way around the world? No, it wasn't. But what the poet is saying is, is it's just a farmer firing his musket at these uh, British soldiers. But actually, it had cosmic significance. The, you know, the, 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 uh, the ascension of uh, the United States and the American global empire started in that moment. And so that's frequently what's happening in apocalyptic literature. So, so uh, some people r- will read the book of Revelation, and this is actually kind of a trope in fiction right now, is that dystopian stories will, will frequently include some crazy wild-eyed character who quotes from the book of Revelation. That's not what the book of Revelation is for. The book of Revelation frequently has current-day events, Roman Empire events, but that are infused with cosmic significance by whirlwinds and fires and great dragons flying through the air and huge, massive amounts of locusts descending. And what the, what the author, John, is doing is he's using a contemporary genre, which we don't have anymore, and saying these events that are happening, the death and the resurrection of the Messiah, the Roman Empire's fighting back against this. This has cosmic ramifications. Now, because we don't have that genre, we go there and we look and we say, whoa, this is, we interpret it literally, and it's not meant to be interpreted literally. That's what apocalyptic is. So you mentioned the book of Revelation written by uh, the apostle John. At the end, the very end of the book, Mm -hmm. he casts his vote very clearly. It says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Mm -hmm. That's Jesus. Mm -hmm. Then he says, amen, come Lord Jesus. So there's no doubt in his mind, it sounds to me, if I'm reading this correctly, that if John could somehow uh, get Jesus to come on that moment, Uh that he'd be in favor of that. 
Should I, should you have that same kind of attitude come now if I'm inclined to think, well, I got property taxes to pay, you know, let me do that first or, or whatever. Right. I've got, I got things to do. I got kids to raise. I got whatever I got. Yeah. So not today, maybe next week. Should I have the attitude that John has here, come Lord Jesus? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, uh, ultimately, I want everything to be fixed. I, I don't want there to be, like, I think all humans agree with this probably. We don't want there to be any more pandemics or any more war. And if the only solution is Jesus coming back and making all things new, it should constantly be our prayer. And at the same time, we do pray in the Lord's Prayer, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so part of the Christian life is is hoping and praying for Jesus to come back and to make all things new, but also to realize that Jesus is here now and his kingdom is growing now and to pray that his kingdom would continue to come. So it's not just a matter of like, so, you know, for instance, to go back to the pandemic, it's not just Jesus come and take away this pandemic. That's our number one prayer. But we're also living lives trying to mitigate the pandemic. We're, you know, we're going to med school. We're studying epidemiology. I don't mean me and you. That's uh, a little bit, that ship has sailed at this point. But we as the Christian church are doing our best to take care of people and fight back against the virus, not just as some sort of like stopgap until Jesus comes, but as an act of, in Jesus's name, fighting against the forces of fallenness that have come into the world because of our sin. Love your neighbor. Yeah, absolutely. And so these two things are true. There's the Jesus come. Meanwhile, I'm going to love my neighbor because it's the way that God actually makes his kingdom come right now here on earth, even before it's all wrapped up at the end, and Jesus finally makes all things right. So finally, uh, the discussions, the interpretations, even doctrines that uh, address the end of the world, as we said before, as I said before, are all over the map. And it's such a broad subject, and we could probably talk for hours and hours, and we're not going to, but for our listener today, what do you want him or her? What simple one or maybe two things do you want him or her to take away from our conversation? That everything in our culture at this point, after uh, in the West after World War II, more and more all the time, everything in our culture is telling us things are getting worse and worse and it's hopeful, hopeless. And what this, this, this opens us up to, this opens us up to being exploited by the powers that be, by political and economic powers, because all of us are afraid. Or even spiritual. Even religious leaders. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like ch churches will do this too. Um, and what I want to say, though, is that you have to ignore those voices and listen to the voice of Jesus who promises to return and make all things new and to trust in that while at the same time working against the bad things in the world but not succumbing to the fear and the anxiety and the hatred that seems to be on the rise as the fears of the end of the world are also on the rise. Well, I think I, uh, I'm with John. Come Lord Jesus. Yeah, amen. That's my prayer for today. We want to say thank you for listening to Craving Answers, Craving God. With Aaron Miller, pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. When you look for Craving Answers, Craving God, and you select an episode, you'll have an opportunity to click the like button or to click the share button on Facebook or Twitter. There's also a place where you can leave a comment. We look forward to those. I'm Chuck Rathard. Thanks for listening, and may God bless your day.